There's a true story, uh, I'm told, from a few years ago, perhaps embellished a bit, about a missionary who went to Europe to share the gospel. And while he was in Europe, he became friends with some European Christians, and he was amazed to find how troubled these European Christians were over the state of the American church. In particular, they were really grieving that the culture, the worldly culture, had been allowed to creep into the church, in particular with how American Christians dress, especially when they go to church. Some dressing like they're just kind of on, a, on their way to the beach. Others coming to church dressed like they're on their way to a fashion show. The missionary was taken aback by just how strongly these European Christians felt and how deeply troubled by this they were. They were so upset, he saw men and women just full of tears in their eyes, and their tears were running down their faces, over their cigarettes, into their beer, <laughs> as they mourned the status of American Christians. No offense to any Europeans here this morning, but that's the problem with legalism, right? It's usually very culturally defined. So the title of my message this morning is The Dangers of Legalism. And to make sure that we're all on the same page, I'd like to begin by defining legalism because really nothing gets a sermon off to a great start like referencing the dictionary, right? What is legalism? Well, in its most basic sense, legalism believes that we can earn or keep our favor with God by what we do. And so in legalistic religions, which really is every religion, every faith outside of biblical Christianity, there are certain rules and rituals and practices and things that you perform in your own power in order to become right with God. Biblical Christianity is the only exception. Because in the Bible, it's all about grace. It's about the grace of God extended through His Son, Jesus Christ, to people who cannot be made right with God apart from Jesus. No matter what they do, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you sacrifice, you cannot atone for your own sins. You cannot forgive your own sins. Only Jesus can. Now, a more common uh, experience or definition of legalism among Christians is a judgmental attitude that arrogantly looks down on other Christians for failing to be as godly as they perceive themselves to be. And usually that's primarily defined by a set of rules that they obey that the other Christian doesn't obey and that God forgot to include in the Bible. I really love how one pastor describes what the root cause of legalism is. And if you only get this from this morning's message, if you only grasp uh, what he defines as the root definition, I think you will be wonderfully blessed. And he says this. He says that legalism flows from a failure to be humbled and broken and amazed and satisfied by the grace of God in Christ. Isn't that amazing? I mean, think about that for a minute. We ought to be humbled, broken, amazed, and satisfied by what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say that there's a whole host of attitudes, pride, impatience, a demanding spirit, a lack of grace, a lack of forgiveness. These, these things are all, they all arise from this failure to be overwhelmed and stunned by the grace that God has shown to us. And that's certainly true, isn't it? I mean, if you were really amazed, if you were stunned at how much grace that God had shown you, that, that you were forgiven for every rotten thing you'd ever thought or said or did, and you grasped 
the depth of God's grace for you, the last thing on your mind would be to judge somebody else. It, it wouldn't come to your mind. You would look at another sinner and you'd think, I don't want to judge them, I want to help them. And so I want you to ask yourself this morning, does that describe your response to the grace of God? If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are, in, in his words, born again, if he is the Lord of your life, do you find yourself showing greater compassion and mercy to Christians who live differently than you do or who are struggling? Or do you look at them and think, what kind of a Christian is, th is that? What kind of a Christian does those things? So here's the deal. I would say legalism is grotesque. Legalism is grotesque. Don't fall for it. Don't be guilty of it. That's really the bottom line. Now let's see why. Our passage this morning is Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 16 through 19. And if you, if you want, there's a blue Bible in the seat back in front of you, unless you're in the front row. And it can be paid, found on page 984. So 984, we can kind of walk through that together. It's going to come up on the screen, though. Paul writes this, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. That's our passage this morning. And so there are three dangers of legalism that I want to go through. Three dangers of legalism. The first is a judgmental spirit. The second is an insistence on man-made rules. And then third is a marginalization of Christ. So we'll deal first with a judgmental spirit. So if you've got your Bibles open on your tablets, your phone, or the blue one in front of you, you'll see in verse 16 it says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. And then a couple verses later in verse 18 it says, Let no one disqualify you. So these false teachers in Colossae, they had a judgmental spirit. They were passing judgment. They were disqualifying. Paul begins by saying, therefore, which refers back to what he taught in verses 10 through 15, right before our passage, about Christians being full in Christ, being complete in Christ. And the more we understand that that's where our fullness comes from, that's Jesus is the one who makes us complete, well, then it provides us strength against the uh, teaching of false teachers. So what they were denying, these false teachers, were that you could be complete in Christ. They taught that human works were necessary. They had to be added in some way for a spiritual fullness that was not otherwise possible. There are still forms of that today. So they were passing judgment on Christians. They were declaring them to be immature or unspiritual. Verse 18 also says they were disqualifying the Christians. And a stronger form of that verb is actually condemn. They were condemning them. So the false teachers were doing more than just criticizing them and kind of looking down on them. They were pronouncing God's judgment on them. One of the things that's, that's kind of remarkable about this is that most scholars believe that these false teachers were actually part of the Christian community. In verse 19, it says that they were not holding fast to the head, which is Christ. So the indication is there was, there was some kind of relationship with him. Now that can be tremendously discouraging, can't it? I mean, we would expect the world to mock us, the world to shun us in some ways, because what the Bible teaches and what we would affirm 
is now seen by many people as not just foolish and, and wayward, it's seen as bigoted and hateful and even dangerous. But the church, the church is supposed to be a place where we can come and we can be real with one another. We can be honest about our struggles and say, well, this is where I'm at and this is where, this is where I want to be. Can you help me get there? And we're supposed to be experiencing the grace of God through one another. And so when somebody comes and just lets into you for one reason or another, it's tremendously discouraging. Perhaps a fellow believer has approached you at some point, and they've kind of looked at you up and down, saw what you were wearing, maybe frowned, or maybe they actually went ahead and said something. Something was too long, too short, too tight, whatever it was. Or maybe you made the mistake of showing them a new car that you purchased, or you talked about a movie that you'd just seen. And things went downhill from there. And you started to wish that you'd brought a defense attorney with you to that conversation. <laughs> now, don't, don't misunderstand, right? We do have a biblical responsibility to go to one another if we see a brother or sister in sin. Our love for them should compel us to go to them and, and, and address that issue. But when we do that, there's really two important points we need to keep in mind. The first one is that it needs to be God's rules that are violated, not yours. And there's often a difference between the two. They need to be God's rules they're violating, not your rules. So if they're not in the Bible, if what you are, feel like confronting a fellow believer with is not in the Bible, tread very carefully. Tread very carefully. It may be wisdom. It may be that you're going and just saying, you know, I, I see that you're kind of struggling in this area. You know, can I give you some counsel in that? It's not, it's not, a, uh, it's not a rule, it's a tool right? We don't want to take the tools and make them rules. It's a tool that I think can help you grow in your walk with the Lord. But you don't put your rules over relationships because rules can ruin relationships. But then secondly, you have to go with humility. Your desire has to be to bless them and to help them and to encourage them, to point them to Jesus, not simply to get something off your chest or to feel better about yourself. And so sometimes you're actually going to go with the right rules, with God's rules, but you'll do it with a harsh spirit. And in fact, that's what the Pharisees did, and, and Jesus was disgusted by it. Let's take a look at Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they do, they do preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They're not interested in helping anyone. They're interested in making themselves look good. And we have to be very, very careful. Now, I don't want to come down too hard on legalists, or you'll think I'm judging them. <laughs> but... When we are legalistic towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to understand that we are not helping them, we're hurting them. We are actually distracting them from Christ. We're putting their attention on human rules and rather, rather than on Christ himself. Paul told the Colossians, and he tells us through his word as well, that they were to have nothing of it. Do not allow these people to pass judgment on you. Do not allow them to condemn you or disqualify you you, if you are following Christ. And can you imagine if we as a church just put a stop to all this? We refused to judge one another 
unfairly. We refused to be legalistic in our spirits towards one another. It, it may all go away at some point if we don't feed it, right? Our responsibility is to keep pointing people to Jesus. The second reason why legalism is so dangerous is that it's, there's an insistence on man-made rules. So it's not God's law that we're trying to follow. It's an insistence on man-made rules. Now, I have spoken to you in the past uh, about one of my offspring who would regularly make up rules if we were playing a game of any kind that would guarantee his victory, <laughs> his or her victory, excuse me. So no matter what game we played, he was going to win because the rules were often made up right on the spot and usually were fairly inconsistent as well. I do have to give the boy uh, points for creativity, though. But I recently discovered that his younger sister has the same cheating gene. And I don't know if it's a flaw in my parenting or it's something wrong with the gene pool. But uh, we played volleyball yesterday. And no matter what happened, even if she couldn't return one of my fierce spikes, or if her return went wildly out of bounds, she said the same thing after, after uh, each, each point. She said, well, that's a point for me. That's a point for me. I wound up losing 25 to nothing, even though I can't remember a single shot she made that was in bounds. Now, this is just a lighthearted example of man-made rules, and this is one that can be solved with, with grounding and the re complete removal of privileges for at least six months. <laughs> Easily addressed. Paul, though, of course, was dealing with some different stuff in the Colossian church. There are many, actually many interpretive questions in this passage. There's a lot of different answers. Uh, it's, it's not as straightforward. If you read different versions uh, in English, you'll, you'll, you'll see that. It doesn't affect the major uh, direction of the passage. But Paul was really concerned about the rules about bodily discipline that these false teachers were giving. And the teaching was likely syncretistic. In other words, they were mixing pagan and Jewish elements together. One commentator put it this way, this false teaching advocated a pathway to fullness and favor with God that refused to rest satisfied in all that we have in Jesus Christ alone. In order to achieve this elite status, they insisted that a person must follow a rigorously ascetic approach to life. That's what they were facing. Some translations don't say insist. They'll just talk about what, the, uh, what these false teachers delighted in. I don't know what your experience is, but my experience with legalists is they don't make suggestions, right? It's their way or the highway. That's the way they look at it. It's black and white. There's no gray. So, verse 16. In questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are some of these man-made rules. Verse 18. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So, food and drink... These are possibly, but not necessarily, connected to the Old Testament dietary restrictions. The idea seems to be that they were forbidding all strong drink, and they were forbidding the eating of meat, which means it was the vegetarian's fault. Amen? This is actually the reason, this is the, a verse that I would point to for why I don't eat vegetables, but that's, that's on the side. So here, here's a very, very important point. I really appreciate the, uh, uh, the writer who put it this way. So they were opposed to these things, right? 
They had restrictions on food and drink that God didn't have in his word, or they were Old Testament restrictions that were, as we'll say, they were the shadows that they were replaced by the substance of Christ, or they were man-made restrictions. And they did that believing that self-denial was intrinsically more spiritual than thankful participation. That's really, really important because I think all of us kind of move in that direction. They believed that self-denial was in and of itself, it was intrinsically more spiritual than thankful participation in a gift that God had given. This is actually a very common legalistic perspective, but it is not a biblical one. Let's take a look at a really well-known passage. Romans chapter 14 will help us to see that. Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may, he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Well, isn't that freeing? People who think that Christianity is just all these rules, it's not. It's a relationship with the Lord. There is great freedom, and then there is wisdom and discernment through the leading of the Holy Spirit so that we all don't look alike. We all don't have the same convictions. We all don't apply Scripture in identical ways. There is freedom. He then goes on to talk about the festivals or the new moons or the Sabbaths, and these likely are referring to the, the Jewish holy days, the annual, the monthly, and the weekly holy days. And the false teachers likely required that they followed these as well. And the passage in Romans 14, right after the one I read, verses 5 and 6, they say pretty much the same thing about those days as well. I would encourage you to take a look at that. Now, let's look at verse 18. There's a version of the Bible called the Contemporary English Version, and I like, I like how it kind of puts it uh, in language of today. This is verse 18. It says, Don't be cheated by people who make a show of acting humble and who worship angels. They brag about seeing visions but it is all nonsense because their minds are filled with selfish desires. So asceticism in verse 18, what is that? Well, it's a rigorous self-denial of bodily pleasures and needs. And here, according to the New International Version, it's really just a false humility, right? It's sort of, as one person put it, it's parading your piety, the very thing that Jesus condemned in the Serpent on the Mount. And he said, you've received your reward in full. In other words, God's not pleased with this. God does not reward this even though they thought they were pleasing God because they were looking to rules to do what only Jesus can do. Then he goes on to talk about the worship of angels. And whatever exactly that meant, it certainly meant an excessive and inappropriate preoccupation with angels. It distracted them from Christ. And we still see that today. It may not be something that you struggle with at all, but we certainly we see people who are who would say they're Christians and they have an, an inappropriate view of angels, a fascination with angels. And you see in the Bible when anyone tried to worship an angel, they, they stopped them immediately. Further goes on to describe the false teachers this way. It says that they had visions. They portrayed themselves as members of this elite group of super spiritual people who God blessed with visions. And they judged other Christians who didn't experience them. Now, Paul is not condemning all visions. He, of course, experienced them himself. 
But Paul doesn't say here whether he believed that these were true or not. They could have just been making them up. Some translations give that impression. What he focuses on is the fruit of those visions. And it was all pride. It was all arrogance. And that is not from the Lord. Lastly, it says that they were puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Literally, the mind of the flesh. And of course, in the Bible, the flesh is contrasted with the spirit. So here's the danger. Right? It is possible to do a lot of religious things, to do a lot of spiritual things, to appear to be very spiritual and religious, even as the Pharisees did, and even as, as, as some of us can. And you can look that way and yet be continually giving in to the flesh. That's a very sobering thought. So, so don't be fooled. Paul says this arrogance comes from their fleshly or their sensuous mind, one that fails to consider the truth of the spiritual realm. And so very likely these spiritual teachers, these uh, false teachers, boasted about their intellect and their superior knowledge, which is kind of typical of people that, that perceive themselves to be smarter than everybody else. They need to let us know that because we're not bright enough to figure it out on our own. So they were arrogant, but he says they were arrogant for no reason. They prided themselves on how great their minds were, but Paul says their minds were fleshly. And yet it can be intimidating, can't it? People like this can be very, very intimidating. And Paul says, don't, don't let them be. I remember hearing a, a story, probably an apocryphal story, many years ago, about, a, about an arrogant young man who went to a party and he saw this, this well-known scholar, someone who's just known internationally as a very intelligent man, and he wanted to impress this scholar. So he kind of cornered him and spent 60 minutes telling him basically everything that he knew. And at the end of that hour, he finally stopped, and the scholar looked at him and said, you know what, I think between the two of us, we know everything there is to, kn to know in the world. And the young man kind of puffed his chest up and said, really? He said, yeah. You seem to know everything there is to know in the world except for the fact that you're boring, and I know that. <laughs> so why all the rules? Why, why do we do that? Why do we go to rules? Why do we make them up? I, I love this, this definition. Our pride resists grace. Grace undermines our efforts to justify ourselves, and human nature instinctively hates that. Just as much as we, there's an old uh, an expression, it's not enough that I succeed, others should fail. You ever heard that before? I actually think that's kind of funny. It's not enough that I, it's not, I, I need to succeed, but others need to fail as well because the gap needs to be pretty big for me to feel good about myself. And the same thing is true of grace, right? We instinctively resist that. We want to justify ourselves. And Jesus was very, very clear why such man-made rules were the wrong basis to evaluate someone's faith. Matthew chapter 15. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, right? So all these rules about, about what you eat, what you drink, that's not what will defile you, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. That's kind of remarkable. One preacher I heard put it this way. He said, if you have to choose between having a beer and gossip, choose the beer because only one is condemned in Scripture. 
And that's another part of the problem, right? We find those things that we grab a hold of. Well, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this. And Pastor Larry's going to talk about that next week. But we overlook things that the Bible actually explicitly condemns. And so finally and worst of all, the last danger of legalism is it is a marginalization of Christ. It's a marginalization of Christ. And this is by far the worst. Verse 17, it says, These are a shadow of the things to come, not future for us, future for when they were. The substance belongs to Christ. Verse 19, And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So Christ is referred to as the substance and the head. The substance in contrast to the shadows. Well, why? Because of who he is and everything that he's done and everything that Paul has talked to us in Colossians already. I mean, dwell on that for a while. Who Jesus is, who he has done. And then ask yourself, how is it possible that anything that Jesus created could be more powerful, could be more effective at making us like him than he is himself? Why would we go anywhere other than Christ? I just want to read Colossians chapter 1, uh, a few verses in there, as a reminder of what Paul has been telling the Colossians about who Jesus is. Right? He is the substance. So what does that mean? Well, well listen. Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Wow, nothing, nothing and no one is more substantial than Jesus, nothing. And so he's saying, what in the world would you pursue these things for? It doesn't make any sense. You're missing the point. You're marginalizing Jesus. And as next week's text says, these things only have an appearance of wisdom. There's no value against fleshly indulgence. They're not going to help you in your walk with the Lord. Shadows look real. Jesus is real. Shadows are temporary. Jesus is eternal. Shadows are worthless. And Jesus is of supreme value. And so we go to him. Second, it says he's the head. He's the head of the body. Christ as the head, using that term, it usually connotes either authority or empowerment or both. And here, probably the ideas of authority and the source of provision are in view. That he, as you can see, he gives all the resources to the body. One uh, scholar put it this way, Christ is the authority to whom the church should look for its rules and commandments and the one who empowers its members to grow spiritually. In other words, the head is the one who makes the rules, not the toes. And these things are the shadows like going to the toes and asking for counsel when the head is inviting us. You know, you don't need to be a doctor like I am <clears throat> to know that a body that is separated from its head will eventually experience some health issues. 
okay, okay, for the, for the sake of my family, uh, I'm not a real doctor, okay? Uh, true story, I was actually in a missions committee meeting here a few years ago, and I was reading a, a prayer request from one of our missionaries, and I pronounced carotid artery, carotoid artery. <laughs> but my point about a body that's not connected to his head, that still stands, because I looked it up. So here's the deal, right? If you are not fixing your eyes on Jesus, if you are not staying connected to him through his word and prayer, but you are instead focusing on rituals, on rules, on ascetic practices, on angels, the disciples, Mary, visions, spiritual gifts, experiences, or anything else, you are not holding fast to Jesus. You are marginalizing Jesus. He has invited us he welcomes us. He commands us, come to me. He is the one that we go to. He is the one that causes the growth. Anything else is legalism. And we are not to submit to it, and we are not to be guilty of it. And so that's, that's really the application for us. Hold fast to the head that is Christ. He alone is the head and the substance. He alone can bring about the spiritual growth that we desire. Another author put it this way, God has ordained that true growth authentic godliness and a life that pleases and praises him is derived from a conscious dependence and a drawing of nourishment from the head of the church that is Jesus. That's it. It's all about Jesus. Verse 19 says that the whole body is nourished and it's knit together through its joints and ligaments with a growth that is from God. Our growth our desire to walk more closely with Christ, to be more mature as men and women, that comes from the Lord. It does not come from legalism. It does not come from your rules or anyone else's rules. It comes from a relationship with God. So when you hold fast to Christ, when you seek him, you won't allow yourself to be judged by anyone else because you will understand what God wants from you. And when you hold fast to Christ, you will not be tempted to judge anyone else because your whole desire will be to help them draw closer to Jesus. My friends, we need that in our church. We need that for the grace that we need to walk through life together. And the world needs to see that kind of grace. And it is available if we refuse to be legalistic in our outlook. If we refuse to substitute a relationship with the Lord Jesus, an intimate one with him, for the man-made rules that are, for whatever reason, so attractive to us. It is all about Jesus. Let's pray. Our, our Heavenly Father, to varying degrees, I believe we would all confess that we struggle with a legalistic spirit. Maybe we're more willing to give in. We're intimidated by, by those who lay out a plan that's con maybe not contrary to your word, but it's not, it's not what you call us to do. And so we follow that rather than following Jesus. Or we may be those, Father, that see things in a black and white way that you have said is not, not that way. Maybe we look at clothing, we look at food and drink, we look at special days, whatever it might be, we look at them in a way that you don't. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see that because the last thing we want to do is discourage one another. We want to point each other to Jesus. We need that. And so, Lord, thank you so much for your word. Apply it to our lives through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. May our church benefit from this in visible ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.